You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so tonight we're going to be in Job chapter 3 as we continue to make our slow progression through the book. Like I told you last week, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit uh, starting next week. So I will, I will go ahead and tell you next week... Um, Four, chapter 4 through 7, so if you want to read ahead for next week, that would be beneficial to you as it's going to be hard to cover uh, that many chapters in just a short period of time. But tonight we're only going to be in chapter 3, and what we're gonna, this is a very difficult passage, and uh, if I was guessing, uh, you probably haven't heard a lot of teaching on this chapter alone because it's not very comfortable, it's not a comfortable chapter to deal with. And what we're going to see is, is Job at the, basically the lowest point of his life, right? And so we looked at the first two chapters, we saw the narrative, the story, and now we're going to deal, begin to deal with the aftermath of the story. And so Job's in a very dark place, and we get kind of a peek into a private moment of Job's life. Maybe you've dealt with something maybe vaguely similar, a uh, difficult time. You know, we talked last week about Job got hammered four times back to back, four serious tragic events, and, and maybe you've dealt with one. I, I hope that none of you have dealt, dealt with four back to back to back to back. But you've dealt with grief, and you've dealt with loss, and you've dealt with pain, and not everybody gets a sneak peek or a, an inside look at what you're feeling. And tonight we get an inside look at, at what Job is feeling. And it all centers around this question of why. Job is basically asking this question, why? When something happens to us, we tend to ask the same question, why? Why me? And we don't necessarily get an answer in the book of Job, but we do get uh, some direction, right? And a couple of things that we find out in chapter 3 is, how are we to handle our own trials? And then, more importantly, I think we are shown how intentional that our lives as Christ followers have to be. How intentional we have to be with every moment that we're given on this earth. And so again, we saw the prosperity of Job in the first chapter, and then at the end of the first chapter and through the second chapter, we saw the testing of Job uh, that God allowed Satan to do. And now we enter into chapter 3, and we see Job's confusion. So we go from prosperity to testing to confusion, right? And Job's theology, and especially his friend's theology that we're going to start to dive into next week, it seems to be centered on this idea that God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked all right and we see this this same theology elsewhere in scripture psalm 1 is a good example where it talks about uh the righteous man and the wicked man and how god blesses the righteous man and the wicked man is is destined for judgment and if we think about those things on a grand eternal scale then that's a hundred percent true it's a hundred percent fact god's going to bless those that are righteous he's going to deal with those that are wicked but if we think about that in our fallen world, on this, on this temporal scale, right, from, from birth to death, this limited time that we're on here, things don't always shake out that way. And you, if I ask everybody to stand up and share, which I won't do because some people would have a panic attack, but if I ask you to share just examples in your own life of have you seen someone and you're like, how, how does that person, that wicked person, get blessed? And it confuses us, right, because we see that sometimes on this earth, wicked people seem to prosper and sometimes righteous people seem to suffer. And so we have a hard time making sense of that and Job's in the same place here in chapter 3. And so we're going to break this chapter down into two parts. We're going to look at the first 10 verses, then we're going to look at the last half of the chapter 
uh, and we're going to see Job do two different things. And the first thing he does is he curses the darkness that he finds himself in. We're going to read the first ten verses. It says, After this, Job began to speak and curse the day he was born. He said, May the day I was born perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. If that only that day had turned to darkness, may God above not care about it or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it, and a cloud settle over it. May what darkness, may what darkens the day terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away, may it not appear among the days of the year or be listed in the calendar. Yes, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout be heard in it. Let those who curse days condemn it. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars grow dark. May it wait for daylight, but have none. May it not see the breaking of dawn. For that night did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide sorrows from my eyes. This, this section of scripture, this chapter, Job begins, it's after the phrase, after this. So we see a clear transition from the first few chapters now to Job is dealing with the aftermath of the first few chapters. After all of these things happened to me, Job begins his lament. He's seen all of his wealth, all his servants, all his family is lost. And so like we talked about last week, he leaves the city. He's found himself settled in a trash dump outside of the gates of the city. And it's here that he sits all by himself and he's trying to comfort himself in his pitiful state. He's confused. He doesn't understand. And he's just trying to find some sense of comfort. Now, if, if you're uh, very observant, you notice that we kind of skipped over the last section of chapter 2, well, verses 11 through 13, where Job's three friends come on the scene. Okay? We're going to pick that up next week when they start to converse. But word has traveled of what's happened to Job. If you're the wealthiest man in the region, people know about you. Right? And so something happens to him. They didn't have to have cell phones. Word traveled. And so these men that knew Job, they hear about it. And Scripture says they made an appointment together. So they scheduled a time that we're going to get together and we're going to go visit Job. And we're going to try to bring him comfort in his, in his sorrow. And it, what's interesting is he was in such a... Remember, he was struck by disease. Not only did he lose, lose everything, but Satan goes back and says, that wasn't a real test. You've got to let me touch him. So he, he diseases Job. And so Job is in such a pitiful state, and he's so diseased that these three friends that come to see him, they don't even recognize who he is initially, right? And so that leads them, once they realize, oh, man, that must be him, it just leads them to weep and mourn alongside him. And again, we're going to study these three friends very in-depth, enough in-depth that you're probably going to be like, can we please move on? But we're going to study what they say and how they interact, and, and we're going to slap them around a little bit. Because the words that they bring to Job aren't necessarily uh, the best counseling techniques or the best counseling methods or the best words that they could possibly comfort Job with. But, like I mentioned earlier, they get a bad rap on some level because at least they're willing to sit and mourn with Job for seven days without even saying a word. That's a long time to sit with somebody and not say a word. And there's possibly a couple things that are going on here, right? They most likely they don't they don't know what to say um i know that i've been in that situation uh and i imagine that you have too what could i possibly say in this moment like even if i know like i would say that me and charlie are very close very close we work with each other we're around each other a lot and if tragedy struck even as well as we know each other you're still in that situation like what do i say there's nothing that i can say that makes this better that makes it go away 
what do I do? And so they sit there in silence. And that leads us to the second point that sometimes Christian ministry, when we reach out to those that are grieving, when we reach out to those in tragedy, it doesn't have to be any more than just willing to sit alongside somebody in their difficulty. Now, I'm a straight shooter, and that's probably a message that the men in the room need to hear <laughs> because that's not our go-to, right? We don't necessarily, we're always wanting, how do I make this better? What can I do to make you feel better? You just want me to sit here that's not accomplishing anything. Well, I, I, this is a waste of time. But it's not necessarily a waste of time. If somebody knows that you're there, that you're there to comfort them, even if you're not saying anything, sometimes that's what true Christian ministry is in the middle of tragedy. And so after seven days, they've sat there for seven days, Job breaks his silence, and, and that's what we see in chapter 3. And what we see is Job exposes his heart. He's heartbroken. He's lost everything. And it's, it's very interesting, if you read some commentaries, there's, I, I saw a handful of people that said Job chapter 3 is the most difficult Hebrew to translate in the Old Testament, which makes a lot of sense because you've got a guy that's pouring his heart out and he's just rambling, and some of it's nonsense. I mean, he's been smacked around pretty hard, and so he's just, he's just pour, letting it all out, and some of it's gibberish, and, and you're not exactly sure how to translate all of it. If you, I was thinking about that today, and if, if on down the road, if what we speak was attempted to be translated, and you think about all the slang that we use, especially if we're talking to somebody that we're super close to, it'd be difficult to translate that. And then you add on top of that, I'm heartbroken. I don't even know what to say. Some things are just coming out. It'd be hard to make sense of that. And so some of this is what Job says is it's, it's hard to make sense of. Um, His entire speech in the chapter can be broken down into two main ideas, okay? And the first one is what we see in these first ten verses. And it's this general idea, this thought that, I wish I had never been born. That's essentially what the first ten verses say. Job says, I wish I had never been born. He says, let the day perish on which I was born, right? He's saying, I wish I could go back in time. Why can't God just go back in time and erase the day that I was born? And he's saying, erase me. He's like, what's the point? I've done all of this to set up the life that I have. Why did you bless me with all those things? Why did I work so hard for all those things? Why did I spend however many years I've been alive to get to this point and all of it not mean anything or matter? And those, that's, a, that's a strong statement. Those are strong thoughts from Job. If you think about the moment that a child is born, it speaks of that day here. In verse 3, it says, uh, uh, it describes the night saying, a man is conceived. Right? There in, in the Old Testament, there is no, well, we're about 14 to 16 weeks, so we're going to go to the doctor and we're going to see if this is a boy or a girl and we're going to be all excited because we're going to know what it is. No, it says that somebody shouts out in the night, a boy is conceived, like it's, it's a boy. That's what it's saying right there. And Job's saying, take all the excitement, think about all that excitement on the day that your children were born, the days that you went to the hospital or the days you went to the doctor's office and you're so excited, we get to find out today if it's a boy or a girl. Then it gets born and all the family's around. And it's just a monumental day, especially if it's your first child. No offense to any kids in here that aren't first children, but it's just different, right? Everything in your life, the first time you do it, it's a bigger deal. And Job's saying, take away all that excitement because it doesn't mean anything. Because if we could take that day away, I wouldn't be experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. Because I don't see it as having any point. It's pointless to me. He says there's nothing to celebrate. 
It needs to not exist. The day I was born needs to not exist. It needs to go away again because the hurt that I feel right now and every day that I'm going to feel moving forward, it wouldn't exist if you'd erased that day. If I'd never been born, I wouldn't have to be dealing with this. And that seems to be selfish. It can, it can, we can take a step back, right? Like, I can't believe Job's saying that. It seems selfish, but it's the truth. It's what Job's feeling. He's pouring his heart out. He goes on to say, that day should be cursed. He's ready to rouse up Leviathan. Uh, let's see here. In verse 8, he says, let those who curse days condemn it. Let those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. What he's talking about here is this giant sea creature that would swallow up things whole. Imagine a whale. And just eats everything in its path. Maybe he's talking about a dinosaur here. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But he's saying, let that monster who's so large and who swallows everything up, let him swallow up the day that I was born so it never would exist. He goes on. He says, the light should have never shined on that day. No one should ever have seen that day. Because all it's brought me is the trouble that I'm dealing with right now. As you read those first ten verses, it's not very difficult to feel the pain that Job is experiencing. He's lost his kids, he's lost his property, he's lost everything he knows. He doesn't seem any way out of it. But even greater than that is this pain that Job's experiencing because in all of that, he doesn't sense the presence of God. If you go back and you read the first six verses of chapter 1, he's offering sacrifices regularly. He's in constant communion with God. He is uh, praying on behalf of his children. God knows who he is. We know that in the conversations with God and Satan. And Job saying, all this is terrible. All this alone is terrible. But the fact that I don't feel God's presence just adds to my grief and adds to my pain. It doesn't make sense. He's been a righteous man up to this point, And he isn't supposed to be feeling this. That's what he's thinking. I'm, this is not supposed to be happening to me. It doesn't make any sense. Why? He says, knowing what I know now and feeling what I feel now, how can the day of my birth be considered a good thing? How can that day, those people that celebrate have lost their mind? Because if they could see this day, they wouldn't be celebrating on that day. He's in a dark place, and he's cursing the darkness. He's cursing the day that he was born. So not only does he curse it, but we look at the second half of the chapter, and he questions the darkness. Starting in verse 11, he says, Why was I not stillborn? Those are strong words. Why didn't I die as soon as I came out of the womb? Why did the knees receive me, and why were there breasts for me to nurse? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never saw the daylight? There the wicked cease to make trouble, and there the weary find rest. The captives are completely at rest. They do not hear a taskmaster's voice. Both small and great are there, and the slave is set free from his master." Why is light given to one burdened with grief and life to those who experience, whose existence is bitter, who wait for death but it doesn't come and search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I sigh when food is put before me and my groans pour out like water, for the thing I feared has overtaken me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be calm. I have no rest, for tor turmoil has come. Jo there's a shift here in Job's thought. For the first ten verses, he says, I wish that I had never been born. I wish we could go back and erase the day that I was born. 
that's not a rational thought, right? There's no going back. I can't hop in the time machine and go erase my existence. God's not going to go back and erase that day. It's an impossible request because the day that he was born can't be undone. It happened. It's reality. He's a human being. So now Job shifts and he says, well, I, I wish I would just die. I wish I would just die. And again, it, this, all this is centered on the question why. Job doesn't understand what's going on. In his mind, this shouldn't be happening. But he, has, he seems to have this thought, you know, if I, if I just understood why this was happening, maybe it would be easier to deal with. Why wasn't I stillborn? Why didn't I just get hidden in a corner when I was born? I don't understand what's going on. If I knew why, maybe it would be easier, easier to deal with. You've thought that. I've thought that. If I just knew why I was dealing with this, maybe it would be easier to deal with. The truth is, that's a lie. 99.9% of the time, that's a lie. It's still going to be hard to deal with. There, Job asked the question, why, five times in this passage. Why didn't I die at birth? Why did my mother take me in? Why was I not stillborn at birth? Why do those in misery live? And why does God imprison a man who's lost his way? That's, that's just Job's way of saying, why doesn't God just let me die? Why does he keep me alive? Why would he keep a man alive that's in such pain? He just wants a way out. And he's asking these valid questions. Everybody in the room has, has asked, why do, why do miserable people continue to suffer? How does that make sense? How is there any purpose in that? Job just wants to die because he sees death as a way out. Now, we have to make a note here that, that Job still clings wholeheartedly to the sovereignty of God. This is not a passage that condones suicide. Job's not looking to commit suicide because he constantly repeats this idea of, why won't God kill me? He doesn't see himself as making that decision as an option. God is the one who decides how long I live. He decides the day of my death. Death is not for Job to decide. He just wants the decision to be made. God, just let me die because I see peace in death. Verse 24 really gives us some insight into how much Job is suffering. He says, I sigh when food is put before me. Maybe his wife is still bringing him food in the trash dump. But he says, I sigh when food is put before me and my groans pour out like water. Remember, he's diseased. Even the, the simple act of eating is painful. Everything, that's, I think that's what they're trying to point out here. Everything hurts. Everything. I can't even have a decent meal. It's so painful. So food makes me cringe. I've lost everything that I have. I can't even enjoy food. Everything is painful. It's physical pain, it's emotional pain, and Job's saying, just make it stop. Just make it stop. And then in verse 25, we're, we're given inside information that Job's previously thought about this day. He's imagined this, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to him. And he's thought about this before, what if I lost everything? And now that day's a reality. He's living a nightmare. He's pinching himself, he's like, Why, is this just a dream? Why can't this just be a dream? He's not at ease. He can't get any rest. He doesn't see any path out. And he can't, he can't find peace because of the situation that he finds himself in. So he not only curses the, the darkness that he's in, but he questions it. Why is this happening to me? It doesn't make any sense. 
now you can see why, why doesn't nobody preach on Job chapter 3? <laughs> There's a lot of misery going on here. Imagine, imagine, I mean, we're going to see Job's friend's reply starting next week. But imagine being a friend sitting beside Job as he's just spewing all those things out. What, what am I supposed to say? How, how can I make that better? So we, we sit here and we hear this or we read this. And, and what am I supposed to make out of it? I mean, this is, this is, it's uncomfortable to read that chapter. What am I supposed to get out of that? What am I supposed to learn from that? Was it 2 Timothy, right? It says all Scripture is breathed out so that we can get something for it. It makes us profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, right? So that we can be made complete. Well, what part of Job chapter 3 makes us complete? Actually, there's a handful of things. <laughs> so let's dig in. We get a little bit of insight of how we minister to those that are grieving. We talked about this before. But there's times where we can minister to others without saying anything at all. Situations like Job's, those that we encounter can't compare. But they're quite awkward. We've all been in awkward situations. Job's sitting on a pile of trash in a state of misery. He's been so afflicted by disease and so ravaged by his own emotions that his friends don't even recognize who he is. Imagine seeing that own scene. How do you respond to it? How many of you have seen somebody in, from, uh, from here to the other side of the room? Maybe I'm in Walmart. Maybe I'm in Kroger. Maybe wherever you are. This happened to me, no joke. This happened to me Friday night at Speedway. And you see a person from afar, and you walk the other way. Because you're thinking, uh, I'm in a hurry. It's late. Um... I just don't, I don't have time. I don't, I mean, I saw a guy that I recognized that other night in Speedway, and it was, I was coming home, and it was pushing 7 o'clock, and I, I had just come home from practice. It's been a long day, and I was like, man, I'd like to talk to that guy, but golly, I, I don't want to spend another 10 minutes here. I just want to go home. I mean, you've all done that, right? Some of us, like me, are probably more guilty of that than other people, but now add misery and heartbreak of that situation. How, how easy is it just to avoid that? How, how easy does the awkwardness of a situation cause us to just... I mean, how many times have someone in here, you know of someone who is, has, is dealing with the death of a loved one, and the first, thing, first thought that comes to your mind is, I, I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to be in the way. When the reality of the situation is, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do in that moment? Does the awkwardness of the situation cause us to go the other way? Job's friends were willing to wade through that awkwardness, place themselves right in the middle of that awkwardness for their friend. The truth of the matter is they didn't know what to say. For seven days they didn't know what to say. And sometimes we don't either, but that doesn't mean that we can't minister. That doesn't mean that God can't use us. Sometimes God just needs our presence. That's what we're called to do, right? As believers, we're called to share the love of Christ, and that's impossible to do if we're only acting according to our own convenience. We've got to be willing to place ourselves in those awkward moments. Is there more, is there, is there more, 
This is bad grammar. Is there more of an awkward situation than the cross? And if Jesus was willing to put himself in that awkward situation, I, I can't minister to a friend in, in grief because it's a little awkward. The second thing we can learn from this is it's okay to, que- to curse and to question the darkness. I think that's what Job shows us here. It's a difficult chapter to read. Job's words are uncomfortable, and they may actually cause us to question Job a little bit, but all we see here is truth. It's an honest and broken heart. Job's in a dark place. And in the middle of that dark place, he curses and questions the darkness. It's completely natural for you and for me to not like affliction and to question the difficulties that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. Especially when we perceive that I didn't bring this on myself. Like, why am I in this situation? I I don't think I've done anything to cause it or to earn it. There's multiple examples in Scripture of the laments of the heart. That's what Job chapter 3 is. Right? The Psalms are full of laments. There's actually a book called Lamentations. That, like, that's all it is, is laments. And it's also interesting that, that scholars point to Job chapter 3 is kind of the example that people after Job use in their own laments. You see that in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah 20, and Ezekiel 30 and 32. Like they're following the template, so to speak, that Job follows in chapter 3. So I don't think Jeremiah and Ezekiel would model their own words after the words of Job if the words of Job weren't appropriate. It's natural for our hearts to lament. And Scripture tells us that God hears the cry of His people. So we can learn from the example of Job that it's okay to curse the darkness. It's okay to question the darkness. But what we have to also recognize is that at no point did Job question or accuse God of doing wrong. There's a big difference between the two. Job didn't attempt to insert his better plan. Job didn't look at God and say, that's the best idea you had because I could come up with ten better. Job never said that. He just said, why? I don't understand. It's healthy and acceptable before God for us to lament in our difficulties. But what do we want to do? What's our first reaction? I'm going to go complain to somebody else. Job, do you follow the progression here? Job, Job didn't see his three friends coming and automatically turn and unload on them. He poured his heart out to God. But that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't, he doesn't, are our friends there? Are they beneficial? Absolutely. But what's our first go-to? To complain to the one that's in control or to complain to someone that has no control? Job mourned and shared his concerns before God, and I think we're called to do the same thing. Third thing, when grief can be paralyzing, but it shouldn't cause us to forget the blessings of God. Job told his wife in chapter 2, verse 10, God has the authority and the means to deliver both good and evil. And it's evident in chapter 3 that hard times can paralyze us. They can paralyze us physically. They can paralyze us mentally. Job cursed the day he was born, and he wishes he could die. And it appears, 
as though his emotions overpowered any possible recognition of the blessings God had bestowed on him. And we have the tendency to do the same. However, we have to attempt to not forget the blessings and good times that, that God has given us. I'll give you two examples. One, think about a parent who loses a child. A parent that loses a child. Or maybe a, a, a spouse who's been married for, say, 35 years, and then they get abandoned. Or they get abandoned, they could in, have a divorce, or let's just say that, that the other partner dies. Okay? In both of those situations, if you ask that individual, the parent who lost a child, or the spouse who lost a partner, if you could go back and do it all over again, would you? Yeah, I mean, 99% of the time, it's going to be a resounding yes, absolutely. Because all those relationships, all those experiences hold immense value. They're all gifts from God that can't be forgotten. So in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our difficulty, we've got to take every effort we can to recognize God's blessing in the good times and in the bad times. Next, what does suffering accomplish? In Job 3.23, Job essentially asks, why do individuals suffer? He says, why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, who God has hedged in? In other words, why are you keeping me alive when I'm so miserable? What's the purpose of all this suffering? What could it possibly accomplish? The book of Job never truly answers that question, but it does give some insight into the value of suffering. And we mentioned this last week. Every situation of suffering gives an individual the opportunity to either run to God or run away from God. That alone gives value to suffering. And in the case of Job, he reacted by running to God. And ultimately, all that he goes through strengthens his faith. We, we could study this one issue alone for a year, right? But the story of Job reveals to us that suffering can indeed accomplish a purpose. God can use your suffering, my suffering, your suffering, for multiple reasons, and we have to be wise to remember that. You don't have to go any further than go back and look, and we'll mention this in, in a few weeks ahead too, but look back at the words of Joseph in Genesis 50. His brother threw him in a pit. He gets sold into slavery. He spends 12 years in prison. And his brothers come before him, and they realize that Joseph knows who we are, and we're in deep doo-doo. <laughs> and they think they're about to get axed. And Job just, I mean Job, and Joseph looks at him and he says, you know, what you've meant for evil, God used for good. So God can take those bad things. God can take your suffering. And even though you can't make any sense out of it, he's actively using it for good. What do we know that Job doesn't know in this very moment? Does God love Job? Yeah. Does God allow Job's suffering? Yeah. Does God care about Job? Yeah. Does God have a plan to restore Job? Yeah. The answer to all those questions should comfort us that God is always at work, even in the midst of a trial. Job doesn't know that. When life smacks you in the face, you don't know that either. Like, you struggle to realize that. 
but God is always working. And again, our ultimate comfort should be the example of Christ. You can't, as a, as a believer in Christ, you cannot legitimately, rationally, logically ask the question, can my suffering accomplish anything when you know that the suffering of Christ accomplished everything? He suffered all the way to death so that you can have eternal life. Yes, suffering can accomplish good. The words of Job in chapter 3 are echoed with Jesus on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same thing Job's saying. Why are you leaving me out here to dry? God is working even when it feels like he isn't. Just for your own study, I don't know if Dale passed those out. I guess he did. There's a handout, 25 Reasons Christians Suffer. That's not only 25 reasons, but it's backed up with Scripture. This is why Christians can suffer. This is what can come out of it. This is how God can be working in your life. Here's the last point. And I think it's the biggest one that you can take away from Job chapter 3. If true darkness exists, we have to share the gospel. The greatest lesson that we can learn from Job chapter 3 is the necessity of evangelism. And you may be thinking, what in the world? Like, how do you make that connection? In complete agony, Job wishes that he was dead. Why would he do that? Why would he wish that he was never born? Why would he wish that he was dead? Because he equated death with rest and peace. Something that he was not finding in the middle of that trash heap. Job was a righteous man. We read that back in chapter 1. It's reasonable to conclude that he had some hope in an afterlife with God. That would be a peaceful thought in Job's circumstances. Right? And as New Testament Christians, we know through Christ's work on the cross that we have the same hope. Through his death and resurrection, we have the opportunity for eternal life in paradise with God. But we also know that those who don't accept Christ don't receive the same fate. They experience eternity in hell, tormented and separated from God. Dale talked about this a few weeks ago, but the parable or the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, right? The rich man that had it all on this side. And then after death, he had nothing. Lazarus, who had nothing. And now in eternity, he has relationship with God. And, and the rich man is like, Lazarus, just one drop of water, just dip it and just, just give me a little bit of relief. Job 3 paints a similar picture. Job is in extreme anguish and pain, physically and mentally. He's paralyzed. He's distraught. He doesn't know what to do. There appears to be no end in sight and no way out. All he wants is relief. Here's the deal. Job's a righteous man. He's going to get relief. Even if God didn't restore Job at the end of this book, he's going to get relief eventually when he spends eternity with God the Father. You can, again, you can feel the emotion in this whole chapter. It's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable to read because it's a picture of a broken man with no hope. But what you probably fail to realize is it's a picture of what a lost man is going to experience for eternity. What Job is dealing with is what all of the lost people walking up and down the street are going to experience forever. So you look at Job chapter 3 and you get uncomfortable. You read it and you get uncomfortable. But do you make that, do you, do you equate that? Do you, do you recognize the link there between what Job is feeling is what all the lost are going to feel forever? Because there is no way out. There is no hope. 
The only guaranteed hope in these situations is Christ. Each one of us has seen broken individuals, and each one of us would do anything that we could to provide a way out. You see the, so go back to the scenario. You've got the friend that's experiencing the death of a loved one. It's awkward. You don't know what to say. But you do know that deep in your heart, if I could do anything to make this better, I would. Especially, and most of us in this room have experienced a situation of someone who's lost a child. You don't know what to say. And in that moment, you're thinking, I don't know what to say, but if, if I could do anything to make this right, I would. And if you feel that way in that situation, that temporal situation that's not going to last, how much more should we feel that way in an eternal situation that will last forever? If I could do anything to make it right, I would. Well, here's the deal. You can. It's called the gospel. And if I recognize that the lost are going to experience what Job is experiencing in chapter 3, forever. Y'all ever seen the Sandlot? Forever. Right? Forever. Forever. Like ever and ever and ever. And then think about some ever and ever and ever some more. Forever. This passage is uncomfortable to read for five minutes. Imagine experiencing it forever. You have the answer. You have the answer. So Job's broken heart here. The hurt, the pain, physically, emotionally. The number one thing that it should do is it should remind us of the importance of evangelism. If we have the solution, if we have the answer, if we have the remedy to that broken heart, then why don't we offer it? So just quick review here. Job 3. You can minister to those without saying a word. God can use you in awkward situations. Don't be afraid to get uncomfortable. Because in reality, that's where God's going to use you the most, when you're willing to get uncomfortable. When you're dealing with difficulty, it's okay to question why. It's okay to question the difficulty, to not like it. But it's not okay to question what God's doing. The question that you should be asking is, what are you trying to teach me right here? What should I be learning here? What are you prepping me for? When I, when I was, so I played high school football. Yes, that's a shocking statement, I know. But I played high school football. It's a great experience. But I never played football until I was a freshman in high school. So I go out as a freshman. And, you know, back in those days, it's a little different now. But, I mean, you're doing three a days for two weeks. You're sleeping in the floor of the locker room. They don't let you go home because if you go home, you won't come back. And you're experiencing, I mean, I never experienced anything like that before. And I'm, I'm like, what in the world is this? <laughs> you know, but what it was was preparation. All that misery, all that sleeping on the hard floor, it was preparation so that when the season came, there was nothing difficult. God does the same thing with your life. When I'm going through those difficult times, instead of saying, why am I not saying, what am I supposed to learn here? How are you prepping me? And, and just pray a simple prayer of, man, let me get it. Let me get it. Whatever you're trying to give me, let me get it so that I can use it. You can't forget the blessings of God. Even in the darkest day, you've got to recognize the blessings. Recognize that suffering can accomplish things. You don't have to look further than Christ to see that, that the suffering can accomplish something. And then last, again, recognizing the darkness that Job's experiencing should cause us to understand 
that the greatest thing that we can do is evangelize. It's the only answer. That's the only answer for the people that are going to experience that forever and ever and ever. So next week, 4 through 7, read it ahead of time. If you got questions, it would even be greater. We might get somewhere. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, uh, man, Scripture, even when it's difficult and uncomfortable to deal with, like Job chapter 3. How you can take the, the darkness and just the pain of a broken heart, and you can still use it to teach. Lord, I pray that we would recognize all the things that, that that chapter alone can teach us, that we would be able to apply it to our life, and most importantly, that we would recognize that, man, you've, you've given us a solution to, to that broken heart. And if we have the solution, then we should share it. Lord, I pray that you would give us all opportunities to do that in the week ahead, and that we would be bold to act in that and to recognize, man, this is the situation that you provided, and that we're ready, that we're ready to share, and that you'll come alongside us, you'll provide us with the words, and that we can provide life through you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this place, Lord. I pray that, that everything that we do would be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.